right, today on the Win Daily Show, I have Omer Dorf, CEO of Sports IQ Analytics. Omer, how are you today? Good, man. How are you doing? I'm good. It's a good day to be alive. I'd rather be alive than not. So, uh, you know, we're going to roll with it. Everyone's stuck in quarantine. We're all doing what we got to do to get by, but it is what it is, man. And so the first question I have for you, you know, here at Win Daily, obviously, we're trying to help people win at betting. We're trying to help people win at DFS, at their season long. But we also want them to win at life. We want you to be a good human being. We want you to do, go do good things and be incredible like yourself. So how do you make sure you win the day? Um, that's a good question. I guess one of the things that I've always done um, is I've always tried to put myself in a position where I'm constantly failing. I think that in order to win, in order to progress, you kind of have to fail along the way. And so uh, fear of failure kind of inhibits you from – continue to go in there for continuing to win uh that's definitely one of the things <clears throat> and then i'd say the other thing is i've always been pretty smart about surrounding myself with people who are much smarter than me you know i think i take a lot of pride in the quality of the people that we bring on to sports iq and that we hire and um not just in terms of the intellectual horsepower that they bring with them but also just their perception of the world and in terms of how they solve problems and i think that uh we learn just as much, or I should say, I learn just as much from them uh, along the way. So those are definitely two things that I can attribute to that. I like that. I'm, I've, I have not gotten, you know, how do you win every day? Well, I try and fail as much as possible, but it makes sense, you know, right? Fail forward. That's kind of become a very common buzzword, but I do agree. Like you have to figure out what's wrong. I personally learn by seeing what I shouldn't do. Case in point, my mom, love her. She's incredible terrible driver just awful driver so i learned when i turned like 14 i was like all right i'm gonna start driving soon what does she do wrong okay i'm not gonna do any of those things and i like to think of myself as a pretty okay driver um ironically she's never gotten into an accident so maybe it's just me or maybe it's just you know the relationship i have with my mom that's a whole other thing but no i do believe in that i do believe in understanding you know how things went wrong and what you can do better and especially you know in your other you know, moving on in life and moving on in companies and, and doing different things, it's good to learn what you did wrong before. So that way you don't make as many of those or um, mistakes later in life, right? And so I think it's very interesting. So I noticed you have more of an analytical background than an actual sports background. Was that, did you always want to work in sports or was this kind of just something that I don't want to say you fell into, but you know, is this something that you saw an opportunity and ran with it? Um. You know, I'd say it's a combination of both of those things, actually. It's an opportunity that I did fall into, and it is some, an opportunity that uh, when we did diligence and kind of explored um, in depth for a period of six months, kind of really realized the, the, the opportunities available in sports and sports gambling and, you know, sports modeling in general. So the part where I fell into it was um, my partner, one of my partners who are the CTO of Sports IQ, uh, is a family member of mine. So tangentially, I've always known about the work that he was doing and, um, you know, got exposure to it through that. And so that's the fell into it part. Uh, but, you know, for about two and a half years uh, prior to that, I, I was running what is known as a private equity search fund, uh, which means essentially we were exploring hundreds to thousands of companies, uh, analyzing their operations, the the market potential, the financials, the strength of the operating team, essentially valuing a lot of companies in terms of their capacity, not just to execute and vision, but also everything that's external to the company, like the market. And so when we explored the notion of 
sports betting and specifically modeling within sports betting over a period of six months uh, as part of our diligence, um, it was obvious to me, this is before PASPA, right? So that, you know, we're talking two and a half, three years ago before anyone was talking about U.S. sports and, and you know, everything that you're seeing. Um, I can attribute a lot of the uh, uh, sort of vision just to myself. It definitely came a lot from my partners and, and a lot of the research that we've done, but certainly it was obvious to us the role that uh, sports modeling, especially unique types of sports modeling, was going to play in a growing market like sports betting once it became legal in the U.S. And so, you know, started the company and two or three months later, uh, Passport got repealed and uh, sports betting was, or I should say, regulated across the United States. Uh, I love it. And yeah. congratulations on that. And uh, we kind of knew a few months beforehand. I mean, you can ask people that in 2016, they started had inklings that this thing was going to get repealed. Thankfully, it did. I'm here in New Jersey, where we were, I guess, relatively at the forefront. I mean, we at least brought it to the Supreme Court in some capacity, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, so we did something right here in New Jersey. So I'm happy about that. And, you know, I think it is very you know, again, taking advantage of the situation, you kind of got in on the ground floor a little bit before that, you know, when they were still digging out, um, you know, the, the the foundation, I guess, and being able to be in from the beginning and, and see how this thing has grown and what you guys are capable of is very interesting. I'm very excited to ask you some questions, but kind of going back to, you know, not, not really being in sports and being more on the analytic side and kind of having surrounding yourself with smart people, as you said, do you think it's more of an advantage for you not coming from within the sports industry and kind of coming from other places to really kind of have fresh eyes or fresh ideas on, you know, something that is, has become as big as sports betting has here? You know, I, I think it's a balance. I, I, I certainly don't attribute that to myself. I, I, you know, I think that if we didn't have the experience that my partners have in sports, you know, uh, one of them has been in the industry for like 15 years, the other one for 25 years, there's a lot of lessons learned uh, through that experience. And so we leverage a combination of experience specific to sports and sports betting and sports modeling with operational experience. And, and so I think that is a winning formula uh, in the context of uh, together being able to be more, you know, increasing your chances of success, at least for us. You know, if, yeah. if you didn't have the background in sports betting, you know, I don't think we would be where we are and, and certainly didn't, wouldn't have gotten here as quickly as we did. Uh, and at the, same, at the same way, coming outside of an industry kind of gives you an opportunity to think about how you can solve uh, problems or challenges or whatever you want to look at um, in creative ways. And in fact, it's one of the things that we try to do when we hire people too in the company. You know, we try to bring a balance of people who uh, may have had exposure and experience to sports betting before in some capacity as an employee in another company or whatnot, uh, and people who don't. You know, we, we hire people who have backgrounds in financial markets, in um, biomedical uh, background, in civil engineering, in, you know, rocket science, people who've never had exposure to, to, to sports betting necessarily. But because uh, we can teach them things about sports betting, they bring a fresh and a novel approach to kind of solving complex problems. And I think we're, we're very fortunate to have that balance. And I, I always like that, you know, you call it a balance. I think it's great. And, you know, that philosophy of you don't want to get I mean, for lack of a better term, like incestual about it, you don't want just people who have been in sports betting for 25 years because it's hard to break habits. It's hard to, you know, old, old dog, new tricks kind of stuff. And really kind of, as you're saying, you know, you obviously I'm assuming most of you are involved or um, fans of sports in some capacity or have been, or you, know, you have kids in it, whatever, but the opportunities that come with people that are completely so far and away from outside of the industry, you normally don't 
interact with a rocket scientist on an everyday basis. If you are, you know, within the sports gambling and sports betting market, you kind of just stick to that market. So I think that's a really great philosophy. How do you even go about finding rocket scientists at that point? I mean, that's yeah. gotta be a difficult way of navigating the market and convincing them like, Hey, we're doing something pretty cool over here. This might be worth your interest. You know, I think one of the things that's unique to our business is that we are working on incredibly difficult, intellectually challenging problems. Okay. So I, I don't think that there's a lot of like car salesmanship associated with trying to convince people that the problems that we're trying to solve are difficult. And so I think the complexity of the things that we're working on and the innovation of the things that we're working on kind of speaks for themselves. Uh, and so when someone applies for a job, whether it's at the data scientist or developer or, or whatnot, um, and we kind of open the books a little bit and explain to them what we're trying to build and what we've done. And, um, I think that really does the talking for us. Mm-hmm. In terms of one of the things that I think, look, obviously if they have exposure to sports betting, then that means that, or sports in general, then it means that the curve of training is a lot, uh, shorter, right. And, and it, it gets factored into when we think about hiring someone, uh, but, uh, Taryn A, who, who's the rocket scientist that we hired, she, she had no background in sports at all, actually. Um, and, and so I think the one thing that you actually can't teach people is passion. And so when, you know, someone applies for a position and, and even though they may not have the background specific to sports betting, if they have the intellectual capa- capacity to solve complex problems, but they have the passion to solve those problems more so than anything, then that speaks volumes to us because we can teach sports, we can teach sports betting. Um, you know, and, 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 and the cool thing is that it wasn't just, uh, individual to Terranay that one employee, but, it, but it really, we really try to make sure that that happens across the board with anyone that comes and joins our business. It is so interesting too. And you, you talk about passion and that's really interesting to me, you know, having zero, you know, ties to sports or even caring about sports. I mean, that's the one thing that I think sets sports apart from everything else, right? It's religion, politics, and sports, the three most passionate things, in my opinion, that most people, you can get into an argument very quickly, um, or you can make friends very quickly by just talking about where you land on one of those things. So in, in, in terms of that, do you, you know, you, you could teach them sports betting, and they're very passionate about what they're trying to fix and solve. Do you have to teach them about the passionate end of sports though for some of these people like you know particularly this rocket scientist not to pick on her but just you know that's who we've been talking about like like i said no uh i mean i i really don't think that you can teach you know intellectually maybe you can teach about passion but i I don't i don't think that you can actually teach it i think it's something that you may experience about something or you may not experience about something and so uh, by virtue of trying to solve the complex problems you kind of become passionate about sports as a result of that you kind of want to learn more about it because by learning more about it it helps you solve uh the problem that you're working on in a a different way Mm -hmm. Um, that's that's been my philosophy i think that's that's a great way of looking at it plus i think again you know the uh seeing other people be passionate about something usually drives passion in others so again just kind of seeing how that works you know again i think is really interesting so thank you for that little little tangent didn't think we were going off on that rail but i really do appreciate that even before you started um sports iq you know as we've said you know you've been in a the industry, you know, the, the analytical industry for some for just a little bit of time, you also took a nice little um, sabbatical. You took, took some nice time off. You went traveling the world with your wife for eight months uh, before you started Sports IQ. What a cool opportunity that is. You told me beforehand, you know, you, you attribute most of that to your wife, but man, I mean, kudos to you guys for being even in that situation. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you, man. Yeah. It's uh, uh, my wife and I talked about it for a long time and um always talked about the opportunity. If the opportunity ever came up, it's something that we would kind of do. And when the opportunity did present itself, um, my wife kind of told me, you know, 
uh, I should watch what I said. I, I probably can't swear on this podcast, but yeah, she pretty much said, uh, you know, it's, t- it's time, it's time it. to go do this. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, congratulations. Where'd you go? What were some of the, the highlights of the trip, if you don't mind? Uh, we spent a lot of time in Asia, uh, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, uh, Southeast, and then a little bit of time in Central America. Uh, we did uh, Nicaragua for about six weeks, New Zealand actually for six weeks as well. That sounds incredible, man. Well, yeah. kudos to you. There's not too many, um, not too many opportunities in many people's lives where you know you, you can get that you know um, chunk of time where you can go do something like that. So kudos to you guys for taking advantage of it. A lot of people would have said, "Oh no, let me go get another job. No, let me you know we'll stay at home, save money." Um, but no, you guys took advantage of it. I think that that's absolutely fantastic. So after that eight months, um, I'm sure you had a blast, but I'm also sure you kind of wanted to get back to work in some capacity. So what? Uh, you know, as you said, you surrounded yourself with some incredible people, your, your family member, the um, operations or officer, I, I apologize, I don't remember exactly his, t- uh, his title, what he does, but your partner at, the, at, at Sports IQ. How did you guys come together, guys and girls come together to create this idea and then go about actually executing upon it? Yeah, so uh, my partner, Matt, uh, who's our CTO, actually, CTO. Um, really is a visionary. Uh, from a product standpoint. I mean, I, I, I can't give him enough credit for, uh, you know, he sees things in two or three years time span that he believes are going to happen. And it's kind of fascinating three years you know, ago when we started the business uh, and looking back at the things that he said are going to happen in that time span, a lot of those things you know, came to be. They may not have come to be in the same way that he had described them, but you can definitely see parallels between that. And so uh, that's on the, on the product side. And then from a modeling standpoint, our other partner, Jose, who's the head of modeling at Sports IQ, um, same kind of vision where he thinks about, you know, if you think about the consumers and the things that they're betting on today, you have to make sure that your models are conducive to being able to support those types of betting. But then the question comes, you know, what do we believe, both from a product standpoint, um, are people going to be interested in, in terms of in their interaction with sports? Um, and how do we think ahead of that in terms of building today the models and the infrastructure and the technology that can support that when the market becomes ready for it? So in many regards, you know, we're kind of taking a bit about starting to build things that people aren't familiar with and may not bet on for a long time, but we hope to be in the best position to kind of provide that type of product. And so the vision really comes from, uh, from, the, from the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I got to give them a lot of credit for that kudos to them and props to you for for uh, as you said surrounding yourself with smart people to allow you to have this type of opportunity again so tell us exactly you know what what is sports iq what do you guys do over there so essentially we are the mathematical engines behind the odds that you would see on a sport book um generally you would see two types of odds you would see uh, odds before a game starts which is known as pre-match uh and then you would see odds when the game goes live um and uh, that's our expertise. We essentially create all of the pre-match and live odds that you would generally see to power all U.S. sports like NBA, NFL, MLB, NHL, as well as the college variations and, and some other sports. And um, some of the things that I think really differentiate us is uh, what is known today in the market is player props, uh, the ability to bet on the performance of individual players, not just before a game, but as the game uh, goes live and progresses throughout the game. And if you think about it, when you go to that level of detail where you're starting to uh, model every single player, uh, and not just before a game starts, but throughout the game, um, it, it, it's pretty complex. And so um, th- th- those are the things that we at Sports IQ do. Uh, 
Uh, we mm. simply power the odds that that provide betters the opportunity to bet on on things both before a game and during a game. And I, I always love seeing odds, you know, when they come out, how much the line moves, you know, the, the player props is, you know, that's always been a, a Super Bowl thing, at least here, you know, from, you know, before PASPA and now the opportunity with the technology and everything, but definitely excited to drive, dive into both of those a little bit more. But I mean, it's, it's always the, the sports betting market has always been super, super interesting to me because in the beginning it was, it's like the seven dudes in Vegas that just have these books and they just have been through it and they've seen it all. Now we're starting to have companies like yours come in and be like, well, those guys have been doing a pretty good job. I don't think anyone's going to sit here and say, no, they've been doing a bad job. Mm-hmm. How have you been able to build upon what they've been able to do? And, and again, just get those lines half a point better or, or a point better to the point where it is really a 50, 50 split. Um, well, like I said, I think we think about it in two contexts, okay? We think about it from a product standpoint in terms of how can we create odds that facilitate products that you would not be able to get elsewhere, okay? Um, we, we, so player props is a good example of that. You know, when we started building player props two and a half years ago, no one was talking about them. I mean, they were predominantly done just for the star players and they were done manually, meaning a really intelligent, statistical, uh, most of the time guy, um, you know, sitting in Vegas or in Europe, um, who had a tremendous amount of knowledge on a specific player would price them would price that individual player and then offer that across betting markets. Um, it's, it's virtually impossible to do in a live scenario where the odds have to change in 400 milliseconds. Right? So we started building those with the anticipation of where we said, look, uh, the way the European gambler bets is predominantly team based. You know, uh, there's not a lot of individuality interest in, in athletes. Whereas if you look at the U S the, propagation of fantasy sports a big part of that was our fascination with statistics related to players and so it was uh an uh an obvious progression to us in terms of where sports betting was going to go in the u.s when the market matured to that point and so um that's from a product standpoint right and so when you think about it we're not really comparing ourselves to anyone because for a long time there was no one else that was producing those lines and so what we were comparing ourselves to was uh, empirical outcomes essentially how did we project versus how how did the outcome come uh, and then uh, as more suppliers are getting into the space or, or are providing these lines, then uh, we do what is known as bet testing analysis. So, so we do a bunch of things to continuously make sure that the product is as the highest quality uh, as possible. And, and I think that's, you know, that's the most important part, right? As long as the, the product is very high quality and, and people can believe in it and trust it and have that understanding that, okay, I, I have a chance here. You know, this isn't, you know, me playing blackjack where, you know, there's those two green squares and that kind of throws everything off or I apologize. Well, roulette, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. But you know, it's, it's just one of those things where, you know, I feel like I actually know what Saquon Barkley is going to do that day because I've watched 16 Saquon Barkley games from last year and I've seen the eight he's played this year. And I really do think X, Y, and Z he's played the Eagles, you know, four times in his career. This is what he normally does. And being able to actually utilize that and take it and, as I was saying, you know, most of the time prop bets and, and these prop plays have been based around the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been based around these gigantic events where, you know, there's a lot of lead up to it. You want some extra stuff to talk about. Oh, do you think Patrick Mahomes is over or under 294 and a half yards? You know, those types of things. Now, essentially, what you're telling me is you guys have been able to build algorithms and you've gotten all this data to be able to do this for, you know, the, the, the fourth string wide receiver on if he gets that catch or not. Like, how, how do you even compile all this data and how do you put this in something where you know let's just start with the pre-game part of it how do you get that much data to be able to do something like this yeah so 
um, there's a few uh, elements uh, to the data side of it, right? I mean, uh, part one is data mining, capturing data from every source that you can possibly imagine. There's a lot of historical data that's available um, for free or, or pay that you can find. Uh, and then official data obviously provides you a lot of that information as well. And so uh, data capture and then data mining obviously is a big part of that. Then uh, the difficulty because of the amount of data that we deal with um, is not just mining it, but then also organizing it and systemizing it in such a way that uh, it becomes uh, possible for our models to read in, in the way they're supposed to read. And, and, and that's a huge undertaking in and of itself as well. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, I think it's not, it's not an impossible task, but I think it's one of the elements that kind of, uh, cause people to shy away from it just by the sheer magnitude of the, uh, amount of effort that's associated with something like that. Um, yeah, a lot of kudos goes out to our data science team for, for the work that they do for this. Yeah. I was on a call today with them and one of them was talking about a bug that he fixed and, um, how, you know, we have dozens of tables, but one table had more than 10 million lines, uh, which is astronomical. Yeah, I don't come from a data science background. So to me to hear something like that, you know, um, I don't know how to quantify it, whether it's, you know, not a lot or a lot, but, but to me it sounded just insane. Yeah. So sounds, was, sounds like a lot. <laughs> I will say it absolutely sounds like a lot. And so not only have you been able to take all this data, you've been able to compile it, you've been able to put it in a way to utilize it. As you said, you have all these different tables with different lines and all these different ways to look at the data. How do you then build a model that you can be confident is, is then taking this data putting it to use and giving you something that is not, not useful, but something that is as close to what should be the outcome. Does that make sense? Sorry, I'm not perfect at these questions. Yeah, no. Um, well, I think embedding, there's two ways to think about it. We strive for two things. We strive to create models that are as, to put it in your way, close to the final outcome as possible. Um, but uh, that, might not necessarily be the same thing that would be provided in terms of odds to betters. And the reason for that is, if we take basketball, for example, if uh, you know Harden had a, uh, at the beginning of the season stretch where he was like averaging 43 or 44 points, um, and we were pro properly predicting that, but as a better, uh, a book would probably get too much action on one side, meaning most people would just take the under. And so there's a balance between what the model's output are in terms of the, uh, prediction of the outcome versus the odds that our clients would want to offer to betters, right? Mm -hmm. those, those aren't necessarily the same thing. Um, so we do both of those analyses, one for the sake of improve, continuously improving the uh, prediction capabilities of our models. But then also, this is where experience comes in. The experience of my partners having built models for, you know, dozens of years have integrated with some of the biggest books uh, globally, um, seeing ways that books have previously been burnt on from betting standards or looking at how betters behavior may influence lines, especially both pre-match and live. All that stuff comes into account in a way that is independent, but should certainly be taken into account from the standpoint of modeling, right? So the, the notion is how can you create enough action that's interesting for people to gamble on, on both sides of the equation? That is a great point, right? Because you need you need the two sides of the equation. You can't just, if you're going to be right every time, that's kind of boring. Um, and you really do need that kind of give and take because that's how, that's how gambling work works. One side is going to win, one side is going to lose. And, you know, as you said, that comes with the experience of having people in your business, as we've said, you know, you weren't in the sports industry, you understand the analytics side of it, but the people that are there that have over 40 years of experience within that sports industry can understand how to 
kind of toe that line a little bit and find that, you know, that touch of gray to make sure that you are on both sides of that. So how long did it take for you guys to understand that aspect of the business? Again, you not coming from the sports betting world, how long was it very quick? Like, no, you need to do it two different ways. Or was that something that you've built up over time and through, through the iterations of the company? You know, I, I think it was a combination of both those things. I mean, I, I think in many regards, you know, being fortunate to have had exposure to multiple businesses in my career so far and uh, gives me an opportunity to kind of pick up on concepts fairly quickly. Um, but, um, you know, looking back at it in hindsight, it certainly took me a long time to, you know, I could understand something intellectually. It takes time for it to really sink in uh, when you see how it actually, you know, comes to fruition. And so, you know, it, it takes time for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, today it's a pretty you know, pretty obvious part of our, of our company. I mean, I think everyone understands the implication of both those things. Uh, we constantly monitor for both those things. You know, I'll give you an example. Uh, we have an, uh, one of the recent hires that we've made, a guy who's been in the industry for a very long time. Um, one of his roles is in real time, he looks at our models outputs and he simulates what a better would have done uh, if he believes that there's an opportunity to take advantage of our lines. And, and so what we do then is we go backwards and, and we think about, uh, okay, let's implement that, that bet testing analysis and, and see, you know, what's the impact on the profit loss if that position was taken on all our lines. And so that's from a betting perspective, but this has nothing to do with comparing it to the final outcome of uh, the performance of a player or of a team in comparison to what we were originally projecting. And so it is pretty fascinating to think about both of these things that we're constantly testing against. And I think, you know, one thing that we're going to dive into in a second is, is the live aspect. And that's kind of what you just brought up or, or maybe, you know, this could be pre-match as well. So how, how do you take, do you want, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say, do you want to be taken advantage of, but again, we need people to take action in one way, shape or form. Is that, do you want that to happen in some capacity to say like, Hey, we want to give you something that you want to play with, you know, whether you're right or you're wrong, that is what it is. But, you know, through those studies that you guys have done have, is that kind of what you're aiming for? Well, look, on the team versus team stuff, right? So which team is going to win, what the point spread is going to be, uh, you know, the hundreds of markets that you can currently offer. Um, we are obviously not the only supplier who produces lines associated with that. And so um, generally what you would see is operators are not going to be interested in offering lines that are too far away from the rest of the market to start with. Okay, so obviously there is a market element associated, you know, consensus element associated with uh staying close to market. We maintain our position, but we stay close to market. And, and um, a lot of credit is due to all the other suppliers who help inform what that, what that center line should look like uh, because obviously there's intelligence associated with creating those lines in their end as well, right? And so it, it definitely always starts from the perspective of creating um, number. It, don't, don't think about odds as necessarily the odds the correct. The, this is the way I think about it. I may be completely wrong and people might, you know, shit in my perspective, my perception of how, I think about it, but I think about sports bets as part of a, uh, you know, consumption of sports and sports entertainment. And so for you as someone who wants to bet on something, think about it as a product. The product has to be interesting enough for you to want to take action on it, to to, want to interact with it. And so um, certainly from both a pre-match and uh, live perspective, the lines do have to be uh, coincided with something that someone would want to take enough action on. Um, then if you think about it from an operator's perspective or a book's perspective, um, they're obviously also balancing a balance sheet, meaning they want to make sure that the action that they take on both sides 
is kind of equal so that at the end of the day, they take their guaranteed or, you know, what they hope would be their guaranteed stake. Mm -hmm. uh, those things don't necessarily have a lot to do um, with correctly predicting the most accurate outcome um, mm -hmm. of the model. So you, I, I, I think it's the, the absolute best way to think about it too. I mean, we as gamblers, um, we want something to do, right? That's, you, you don't gamble because, I mean, you, you gamble because it's fun. Um, and if there's no, if you don't think that there's a way that you can enjoy something, you're not going to bother with it, right? You know, maybe I think that, you know, that, that level of engagement that you talk about, that level of kind of let's put a little bit extra on this Thursday night football game between the Jaguars and the Titans, because I kind of want to watch football, but I really want to watch football. So give me, you know, give me that opportunity. And I think that's a great way to look at it. So how far off, and, and, you know, I, I apologize for asking this question if it's too deep, but how far off are those numbers sometimes like compared to what, what you think people would take action on versus what you actually think is the correct way to look at it? How far off is an interesting concept to think about, right? Like, if you're thinking about it from a mathematical standpoint, uh, are we talking about what's the percent difference between what the center line ends up being versus what our model predicts? I mean, um, it, it, it varies. It varies mm -hmm. by market. It varies by a lot of things. You know, like sometimes what you'll see the, ma the model's output versus what um, the center line should be um, are fairly close. And in some cases, they're very far. I mean, James Harden is a perfect example of a situation that we saw where the lines posted for Harden were too far off uh, that would create one-sided action. The other part of it is that uh, while we have our own perceptions, uh, we may not always be right about it. And so getting uh, informed information from our clients and people that we work with plays a huge element into that, right? Like um, you can't build these things in silos without market uh, feedback. And so I shouldn't say that sports IQ in and of itself uh, should take all the credit for getting the lines correctly. I mean, a lot of it also is associated with making sure that we are informed by what the market is telling us. Uh, but yeah, in some cases you do see it fairly close and in some cases they're, they're not necessarily as close and that's more driven by betting behavior rather than anything else. Mm -hmm. And taking in hum the human element, that has to be a fun thing to throw into uh, you know, some of these algorithms and understanding where it is so specific and now you're throwing in something, well, you know, Giants fans are probably going to bet more on a Giants game. Now, does that mean they're a depressed fan base? Yes, the last few years we have been. So we probably would be betting against our team. But, you know, that I, I, that that might be a little too deep and that's something we don't want to get too crazy on. But one thing I do want to start talking about is, you know, you guys are very much in the player props, as we've been talking about, as well as the live aspect of it. So, you know, we spoke a little bit about how you really develop these, like, pregame props and what you're able to do. How do you then take all that information and essentially, you know, Steph Curry comes out in the first quarter and he hits five threes. Okay, well, he's already up to 15 points. Like this is, is throwing off, you know, the, the over under of 27 or whatever. How do you then take that number? And in real time, as you said, I think the number you used was 400 milliseconds, if I'm not mistaken. How do you do something that quickly to the point where it is as real time? And again, that number and the action is still fun on both sides of that. Well, um, I probably can't answer that as intelligently as our head of modeling would have been able to answer that question. But um, there, there is a lot of analogy if you think about it from a pre-match standpoint to live. I mean, you are collecting data. The difference is that when you look at pre-match, you're collecting data that encompasses the entire um, time frame of a game versus when you look at it from a live standpoint, you're looking, you're kind of like splitting it up to as many small pieces as you possibly can. And so... Um, 
there are obviously also variations in that. I mean, I, I won't get into all the details, but, but you're, you're talking about significantly more data to process and therefore the complexity of the models are tremendously more difficult. Okay. Like if you think about football, for example, American football, uh, if you think about creating lines for the entire game, it's kind of easy to think about how many rushing yards RB1 is going to have when you look at just the entire game. But what happens when a team is up 38, you know, whatever the score is, you know, call it 40 to 20, uh, and it's the fourth quarter with five minutes left, they're probably not going to uh, pass the ball as much as running it, right? And so uh, there are situational things that you have to think about when you create uh, live models that you don't necessarily have to take into account when you create pre-match models. And so um, the short answer to your question is it's tremendously uh, more difficult from the context of the complexity of the models, and uh, you're dealing with a lot more data. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, being able to, again, going to find that data too must also be very frustrating. As you said, you know, you guys have millions and millions of data pieces. How much, how many data pieces are there, you know, comparatively, at least, you know, using those percentages where a team is up 40 to 20 with five minutes left in the fourth quarter and they have, you know, just even getting that more granular with it, I think is just so incredible and in how, you know, you guys have been able to take all of this information and become one of the premier companies in the area, in the, in the space on something like this and shout out to uh, your chief technology officer. Was this something he saw three years ago when you guys put this together that the technology and the internet speeds and the, the thirst for this type of betting would be around and, you know, be thriving. Yeah. Both he and our head of modeling had a lot of vision related to that in their own respective ways. You know, if you think about uh, the technology that is used in the industry to create models previously, it's, it's very legacy technology, right? I mean, a lot of the companies that have started in building odds in the late 90s, early 2000s are using legacy tech. And as a result of that, I haven't necessarily made the investments to uh, move into uh, the advances that we've seen in cloud computing and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's obviously been a lot of smart decisions that he's had the ability to make. And in the same regard, our head of modeling Re, you know, has had a lot of experience in building models, but has completely rebuilt the entire methodology of how he thinks about building models. Um, because he wasn't building what he knew people wanted today, but was thinking about how can we create models that would be able to power the things that people will want to bet on in two or three years from now. Um, so yeah, def definitely both of them are visionary in their own rights. Yeah. Shout out to them and shout out to you. I mean, you're the CEO. You, you're very humble, um, but I'm sure you have a very big role to play in all this as well. And whatever you're doing, you're clearly doing a great job at it. And so with, with the constant amount of data that flows through year over year, game over game, you know, minute over minute, how, how much, at what point is it overload? And at what point do you start to throw away, you know, let's use basketball, for example, or football, you know, the game has changed in five years, you know, the NBA specifically, you know, you have the Splash Brothers, Steph Curry, and, and then, you, you know, Clay Thompson and what they're capable of doing. And so how much do you take data from five, six years ago on that player, what they've done? And, and how much do you pretty much just throw away or not even pay attention to because the games do change rapidly and, and have been expanding in, in certain areas compared to others? Uh, we take a lot of data into consideration. There's a lot of parallels that you can make uh, between historical data to the data that you find today. Look, and I'm not speaking from a necessarily a place of knowledge. I'm only speaking from a standpoint of joining some of the data scientist meetings and joining some of the modeling and the quantine meetings and just listening to how they're thinking about solving uh, data problems that they're encountering on a case by case basis and how they're kind of solving that using both historical data from many years ago and not. Um, 
but yeah, uh, it's, I, I think it's one of the most fascinating things that I hear going on in our company on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, now to answer the other part of your question, I think it comes back down to the product, right? It depends what you want the product to be able to do. So there are things that, uh, we, the product doesn't require a certain level of data. I mean, I, I gave you a perfect example when we thought about pre-match versus live. Well, you can kind of think about that from a productization standpoint as well, where certain elements of the product do not require the same level of, of data and historical data and analysis that other things will require. Okay. Um, so, so, you know, I'll give you an example to that. If you think about NFL, you think about NFL props, we talked about the difference between pre-match versus live and how things change. If you talked about live or, or not live, um, well, you can also extend that, right? What happens when you're thinking about RB1 versus RB3? How can you properly model an RB3 where you don't have as much data as you would have in the same statistical confidence that you would have with an RB1? And so those are the kinds of things that we're constantly learning about and, and thinking about solving. I love it. I think that, again, this is just super interesting. And I apologize if I'm asking questions that you weren't prepared for, but this is just pure curiosity from no, my no, standpoint. Because I, I do not get to talk to people like you every day. So I'm very grateful uh, for what, this I, talk. I can't wait for some of the team to hear this and totally roast me for possibly <laughs> getting some of these wrong. So, Hey, if they roast you, tell them to come on and I'll just ask them all the same questions. How that, how's that sound? And then <laughs> so, better, I can promise you. <laughs> you're doing great, man. And I appreciate it. Um, so Omer with, you know, with all this information, with all this knowledge and how you and the rest of the team, of course, again, you're very humble and we appreciate that. And I'm sure your role is much bigger than you're leading on, but that's what a good leader does, right? He props up everyone around him. So kudos to you there. What, what do you see in terms of, you know, I, I just had an incredible conversation with a gentleman and he was telling me, you know, the Asian market, not to, you know, get too, too granular and specific, but 90% of the bets that they place are live. You know, the European market is specifically in Ireland, 75% of the bets they place are live. And now it's not mostly on the player prop side, but I'm sure some of it does involve that with the U S market specifically, how much do you see a disparity in live bets? And specifically on these player prop live bets that you guys have been able to, um, you know, become experts in compared to the rest of the market. So I, I think it varies by state, uh, depending on some of the legislation stuff. And obviously I think it, it varies uh, by state because of uh, betters behavior, right? So I think when Jersey started predominantly it was pre-match, it wasn't live and it evolved. I think today I'm getting my stats wrong for sure, but I, I do believe it's like in the vicinity of like 75 to 80 something percent is now done live, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, that being said, player props today represent only a very, very small portion of the turnover that a book would receive. Uh, and, you know, I think any, we're, we're cognizant of that and we are aware of that. Uh, do we believe that that's still going to be the case in five or 10 years from now? No, but, but uh, today it certainly doesn't represent a tremendous amount. So even in the context of Player props, I do believe that the majority of bets that are done today on props are pre-match and not live. And the reason for that is um, lack of product availability. I mean, books are now just starting to roll out more comprehensive player props offering. I mean, if you follow like, you know, Bleacher Report, if you follow on Barstool Sports, if you follow Caesar, if you follow any of these guys that have been on Instagram, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will see that they're starting to post pre-match props as part of their content, right? And so I think there's going to be a consumer education associated with that. And I think as more people become uh, more aware and familiar with these types of uh, products, uh, the comfort level is going to increase and you'll see the same increase that you saw from going from pre-match to live uh, propagate in, in, in products like player props as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think we can think about any product that you would introduce. I think for the majority of the time, people will start with pre-match and then move into live. 
Um, but that being said, I do think that if you think about, you know, people who are 21 today in the United States and are betting versus the people who are, you know, 16 years old today and will be 21 in five years and the way they interact with technology and the speed of information and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, we think about how can we take that into account when those are the consumers that are going to possibly be betting and uh, how would they want to interact with certain betting products. And so mm -hmm. it's a really interesting balance to constantly think about how can we offer products that we know today people want to bet on and are interested in and making sure that we have that, but then also continuously invest in the future so that we are that supplier that uh, has the required products when, when mm -hmm. people are desiring it. And that's, that was going to be my next question. I mean, you guys are putting so much time, energy, and effort into this area. And as you just said, it's such a small, small portion mm -hmm. of the betting market. But once this does become more widespread and once some of these media companies start to pay attention to it more, then they're going to get into that pre-match props even more. And then they're going to start to see these live opportunities. So with all this energy and effort being pushed onto this side, can you use this data for anything else? So that way there is some extra revenue driving from it. I, you're smirking. So maybe you can't answer that question, but you know, like you, you guys are putting so much time and effort. I feel like you guys, you have to be, you're, you're much smarter than I am. Let's start with that. But is there other ways that you can utilize this data? So that way it's not just there, uh, you know, cause as you said, it's not really being utilized on the betting side too much. Yeah. I, I think that there's definitely different opportunities associated with how uh, the manifestation of the products that we're building can be used in, in things outside of bed. You know, when we think about ourselves, as a business, you know, we don't think about ourselves as a sports uh, uh, betting business. We think about ourselves as um, really odds makers in the context of modeling sports performance for teams and players. Um, but I think from a focus standpoint, we are exclusively focused today on sports betting because of the opportunity that exists, you know, mm -hmm. how these things may be used in the future. You know, maybe, maybe have me on the show again in a year or two and we can kind of like come back to this question. But uh, today our bet is, you know, how can we continue double downing? Look, if you focus uh, too short term on revenue, you are sacrificing the investments that you have to make today in innovation. Um, and that is the risk that we as a small startups are willing to take, right? Um, and so for that reason, we are sort of exclusively all heartedly uh, focusing on um, models for the sports betting industry. But keep in mind, we don't build just props, right? Player props is one of our biggest differentiating factor from a product standpoint. Uh, our question is, how can we provide you the same quality that you are expecting from our innovative product, but across our entire product portfolio that you would be getting from any supplier? Uh, and so our hope is that uh, when you choose to look at our product and choose to buy our product uh, when it's props, uh, you'll be so convinced by it that you'll over time decide to use us uh, as your supplier for everything else because you're getting a better service, a better product, a better uh, you know, accuracy. I love that. And, and with that accuracy question, um, how much better can you guys and your company get and really just all companies get with the advent with 5G coming along and, you know, people talking about just the incredible speeds. I don't actually understand the speeds because I think 4G is kind of fine for me, but I think that's where it's, it's much less the just person streaming Netflix on their phone to more what you were talking about. You know, does that 400 milliseconds come down? Uh, does it come down by a lot? And, and how much more accurate does that allow you and, and your, your lines to become? I really can't speak that intelligently about it uh, because that's not really my area of, of expertise. Um, I do think that um, there will obviously be implications. I, I think what's more interesting, again, if you, if you just 
always just think about the consumer at the end of the day. Um, I think what, it, what the, again, without knowing too much about it, I think what 5G is going to represent is a better consumer interaction, whether it's with streaming, whether it's with betting, whether it's with, you know, whatever it is. Um, I think once um, that kind of propagates across the industry, uh, there's going to be implications for, for, for every individual, right? And so um, fairly confident our CTO is already thinking about that and kind of planning for it. And that is my last question. I know you can't answer it, but what does he see down the line for two or three years? What are, what are some of the ideas he's, uh, he's cooking up in his brain? Because clearly the guy's been right enough times. I at least have to ask. Yeah, look, uh, again, I think what you're going to see, um, and I wouldn't say this is just novel to us. I think a lot smarter people than us have said it who have been in the industry for long enough. One of the interesting things about the United States being state by state is that there is a tremendous opportunity for personalizations of products, right? If you think about it, um, why should you living in Jersey uh, and might be, you know, you know, who's your favorite football team? Giants. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you might be interacting with the Giants in a fundamentally different way uh, than someone who might be interacting in Vegas uh, next year with the Raiders, right? Both in terms of the content that you're consuming and therefore the sports betting content that you would be interested in, not just in terms of news and articles, but also the, the, the products that you would be interested in betting on. And so the question is, um, how do you create more personalized betting experience and opportunity for people? You know, and uh, I think a lot of the smart operators like points bet, you know, like uh, the score out of Canada, like uh, William Hill USA. I think you're seeing a lot of these operators starting to think in that regard. And so they're, uh, so the question is how can we kind of power that next phase of a more uh, personalized betting experience for people? And when you say personalized betting experience, does that mean, it, it, one of the many ways potentially, you know, the line for a Giants game might be different in the New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut area than it would be in California or in Las Vegas. Is that kind of what you're describing or is yeah, it completely I think, off? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not that different from what you see in Europe. I mean, uh, an operator in Europe would have, the good operators in Europe generally tend to have separate lines depending on which jurisdictions they're in, whether they're in uh, London, you know, in England, or if they're in Spain or in France or, or whatever jurisdiction they, you know, they kind of have separate systems. Uh, the question is, how do you extend that to a country in the United States where it's also not just state by state, by person by person, you know, like you might be in Jersey and care about the giants, but uh, what if, uh, I'm not sure if you have any siblings, but you know, your best friend or whoever it is actually was far more interested in another team, but you guys are both living in Jersey. Like how can you create content? If you think about betting products as a personalized experience for you, how can we create uh, engaging uh, products that would want to make you interact with sports as a whole uh, more so? And so that, that's, those are the kinds of things that we're thinking about. This is incredible. And I'm so glad I got to have this conversation with you. Omer Dor, really, really appreciate your time today, man. CEO of Sports IQ Analytics, all around smart guy. Super, super awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, man. Thanks a lot for having me, Michael. Appreciate it.